Um, hello, first of all, from UWA Albany campus in Western Australia. Um, I'm down here for the first ever alumni uh, graduation in Albany. I'm Jen Parsons, the Senior Alumni Engagement Manager. It is the tradition of the University of Western Australia to acknowledge the custodians and traditional owners of the land on which our campuses are located. At the main campus, Crawley, the University acknowledges the Woodjuk Noongar people as the traditional owners of the land on which it is situated. On the Albany campus, it is the Minang Noongar people. The Woodjuk and Minang Noongar people remain the spiritual and cultural custodians of their land and continue to practice their values, languages, beliefs, and knowledge. Strength, prospects, and thought leadership are synonymous with UWA. Our alumni network in the USA is led by Dr. James Kelly, and this, is a prime, this network is a prime example of continually connecting our students, researchers, alumni, and industry with your university and with each other. This webinar is an example of this connection to each other and with your university. It highlights the impact our graduates are making in California and across the globe. I truly hope you will find it valuable. Keep an eye out for the upcoming Community Connect newsletter in your email inbox, highlighting the events in your city in 2023. For now, we hope you enjoy this online experience with this amazing panel of alumni. I will now turn things over to Dr. James Kelly, who will guide this conversation. James, over to you. Jen, thank you so much. And what a great introduction. And enjoy Albany uh, while you're down there. Thank, thank you. you, everyone, for being at today's event. We're really excited to host this event today. Before I introduce the panel, I'm going to bring in my co uh, co, I was gonna say panelist, but co-presenter, co-interviewer, Chloe Bell. Chloe, could you please give the audience a quick hello and tell them where you're at and uh, what you're doing? Absolutely. Hi, um, hi everybody. Thanks, James, and thanks so much for having me today. Um, you'll see behind me the probably the familiarness of the campus. So I'm up in the trees, um, overlooking James Oval. Um, I um, I get the absolute pleasure of um, working at Venture, the Student Innovation Centre. So we help um, students develop their own businesses and we also give them opportunities to work with local startups and SMEs to uh, really grow that innovative mindset. So thanks so much for having me today, James. I am so excited you're here to co- I keep wanting to say co-present, but really co-interview uh, with the panel. So let's introduce this panel. This is a fantastic panel. We're going to do a little slow reveal one at a time. And so I'm going to start with an individual who went from Singapore to London to the beautiful city of Milwaukee, U.S., and now resides in San Francisco. Please welcome Claudine to the stage. Claudine, how are you? Hi, everyone. Claudine. I'm Claudine. I'm, I'm based in San Francisco, well, a little north of San Francisco. Um, my company, Electivity, delivers live on-site classes at schools and virtual programs that include arts, sports, STEM, language, and music. So um, we serve communities in the Bay Area in addition, in addition to having a presence in Dubai and Arizona. Well, and, you know, um, having spent four years in Dubai, I, I can't wait that you can share some stories about your trips out there and the uniqueness of that city in and of itself which is phenomenal. It's the, the biggest crashing of old and new at the exact same time that you could even imagine. 
So thank you for being here today and being part of this conversation of startups in California and startup founders. So I'm introduced next, the, uh, the individual who is the youngest, but I think savviest of the group that we have today. <laughs> he goes from two, December 2019 in Perth, and there shortly in 2020 is in uh, Cupertino, right as the pandemic start. Please come to the stage, Rory Garten-Smith. Hey, everyone. Lovely to be here today. Thanks, James. No worries, Rory. Tell everybody what you're doing really quick before we jump in. And just so the audience knows, Rory is in the Qantas, I think, not terminal, but Qantas. Um, where are you at? Uh, is, yeah, I'm in T3 at Qantas Domestic right now, uh, flying to Brisbane in a couple of hours and then back to LA. Yeah, <laughs> but the internet here is great, it turns out. So Rory is, is, is squeezing this in is what he's doing. He's squeezing this in <laughs> in his busy schedule. Rory, can you please share with the audience what you're doing and where you're really at? Because you're not really at the terminal. You're actually on your way to somewhere and where you live eventually. Yeah, um, lovely to meet you all. Uh, I'm the co-founder and chief technology officer of a startup called Checkmate. And before that, I did two years on a software engineering team at Apple. Um, I've been based in California for the last three years, uh, living in San Francisco, but I just moved to LA about a month ago. And um, my favorite UWA memory is trying to jump over the uh, the moat around Reed Library. Um, and yeah, <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> what a fantastic one. All right, that's fantastic. All right, next up. Now, I love this little bit. So I was doing some research before we started. And so in looking at LinkedIn profile, this individual had three jobs and according to the timestamp, all at the same time in two different countries. So today, Graham Speak is actually in Rottnest Island and he's also squeezing us in in a big event. Graham, thank you for coming today. Please introduce yourself to the audience as well. Thanks, John. So again, Graham Speak. University. So I'm based out of San Francisco now for the last 14 years. Uh, something building is simply based out of San Jose, about 50 miles from each other. I'm doing a cyber security technology startup, which, interestingly enough, is still technically based in Perth by Core DevTenus. And I'm championing the outreach. Graham? Yeah, it's really hard to hear you. Um, so I don't know if the mic can be adjusted a little bit there, please. Uh, like, Much better. Hold, hold yeah. on to it. I'm actually at Rottnest Island at the moment. Yeah, back for the yeah. first time in four years. So actually rather beautiful. That's awesome. Thank you. And Graham, just, just to obviously flag this, it's a little hard to hear you. So just make sure that mic is nice and high for us to hear you. Fantastic. Cool, thanks. And finally, <clears throat> really, I met this gentleman back in 2012 in New York City at the time. And he is a veteran in the advertising industry. And so you might be asking, why is this individual here today? Because he's not a startup guy, but what Adrian does, which is so valuable, is he helps startups with the brand. So bring on Adrian up to this to the stage, if you will. Adrian, thank you wow, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, it's an August company and uh, a lovely event to be part of. So thanks for the invitation. Well, we're really excited to learn from everybody today. And so we're going to dive in. We only have a short amount of time, and I don't want Rory to miss his airplane. So we just want to get right to this here. So, no, you know, we did, we did. <laughs> so when we think about how we're going to do this today, we're going to ask some questions and we'll just bounce around. And, you know, we want this to be a real conversation. So interject if you get ideas and thoughts. 
you know, it doesn't have to be a one person at a time. It can be a community conversation. But we're gonna start with Claudine in this conversation and then we'll see where it goes. As everybody knows, uh, who's ever done a startup, worked with a startup, thought of a startup, risk is through the roof. And so one of the consistent attributes of an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs is the ability to absorb risk. And so Claudine, can you share a short story about a moment that you realize the reward of this, this venture outweighed the risk? I regularly use um, scenario planning to map out challenges we could face and um, determine you know, how our business will respond to these challenges. So fire seasons and power outages occur in the Bay Area, as some of you may know. So when this happens, schools will shut, but typically resume after a few days. However, the pandemic, um, like everybody else, threw a cool through a you know curveball at us and we were not prepared for that so when we had to cancel our classes during the pandemic we made a strategic decision to provide full refunds to families even though we still you know have bills to pay so that was one um there was i remember that there was one large company who was somewhat a competitor did not offer families the option of getting any kinds of refunds um, they receive really negative publicity in the papers, and every day we read about you know, complaints from families. So essentially, whatever value this company had created before the pandemic was wiped out from you know, people's memories that day. So that was when I realized that our decision to refund outweighed the risk. Now, as we recover from effects from the last couple of years, I feel that um, customers will stick with us because they know they can count on us to do the right thing. Yeah. And so can you think back to like the moment you decided to leave, uh, you know, uh, organization and, and take this leap of faith? And what was that decision point? You know, was, I can only speak for myself, you know, as a startup founder, uh, I left academia and boy, that is the cushiest gig you could ever get. Um, it was great. And I left that choice. And I invested my retirement, my wife's retirement, some kids' college funds. Please don't come in while I talk about that. Um, and also, a, we sold a condo to live off. Like, so I, I went all in. And for me, the moment was I didn't feel like I had a choice. If I wasn't doing this, I don't know what I would do. So for you, do you recall like that moment of making that decision of leaving the security of an organization and diving headfirst? I think I am um, kind of on the adventurous side. As you say, I've moved from Singapore to Perth. Um, I mean, um, I grew up in Singapore. I studied in Perth for four years, moved back to Singapore, and then moved to Geneva, London, Milwaukee, and California. So, well, so that takes a little bit topic. of a kind of an adventure and, and risk-seeking um, um, personality in me. So I think... Um, when we when we moved to California, I was closing up a, um, a company that I created in Singapore, and I just happened to feel that there was a gap in this market for this particular service that we are providing. So there was nothing for me. I, I felt that there was nothing to lose. I was you know driving my children on the road up and down for activities, and I thought you know this could be something that parents would would welcome. Yeah, that's awesome, Graham. How about you? How about in your in your world? And, you know, you've been an entrepreneur for a long time, I feel like. 
I, I have. I've, I've actually, I remember I met a guy once in Cottesloe and he told me he had, uh, he was obviously very wealthy, uh, massive home. And he said, yeah, I got here because I risked everything that I had on a particular deal. And I was so impressed with that. That was like total commitment. And being an entrepreneur sucks you all in. And I tell you, I've done that now probably a dozen times since I've met him. Um, so I'm, I am a risk taker, but I'm not a fool. And these, I'm, I'm never gambling. Uh, when I take risks, it's actually calculated. And I know that I can influence. Um, I know I can bring other people's resources in. And that actually is what changes the game. Mm. But if I go back to a particular memory, um, when I was first thinking of becoming an entrepreneur, I had, a, like you, uh, James, I had a very comfortable job in the government. I didn't have to do anything. No one would even notice if I was doing anything. And I had this idea to start a business. And I remember meeting a friend of mine's father. My friend has several palsies. His father was a, uh, managed a wheat, uh, sorry, a, a, a wool grading business down in Fremantle. And he was a, you know, self-employed, always looking after his son. And he said to me, he said, Graham, do you want to ever get to the end of your life and wonder if that idea could have worked? And that was like a rocket. I just thought, wow, you know, so I, I actually went home and I drafted out what a resignation might start to look like. And I couldn't finish it enough. And that was actually on my boss's desk at 7 a.m. the next morning. And that was the start. So, you know. I, so for yeah, you, it's like in your blood. Like you just kind of knew it. Like once you made that decision. You know when an opportunity is bigger than you. And um, you can scratch that itch in a little while, but it's, at some point you've got to actually jump in and do it. You just can't sit there forever. Yeah. That's fantastic. I always hear that advice too. Like, yeah, and and I I can appreciate when someone in a someone who has a job and doing a startup at the same time. I just can't do both. I gotta be all in or I'm all out. But I can't be on a fence trying to do two different things at once because my my ADD doesn't allow that. So like, yeah. I I think that's. I just want to say, yeah, just absolutely emphasize that uh, the Silicon Valley formula is do one thing. If you're splitting your time between things, it's going to be diluted. Um, the only yeah. way that we can actually totally focus and totally commit is to just do 100% of one thing. So I'm going to ask Rory and then I turn over to Chloe. Chloe, Chloe, who's Chloe? Chloe to to do the next question. So Rory, you are, you know, I always, I always when I counsel anyone who's youthful in their age, um, and I always say to them, hey, you can mess up big time now and recover, no problem. Right. Like, so for you, what was that risk reward of leaving Apple, which I'm sure paid pretty well, comparatively speaking to going out on your own? Um, well, seriously, actually, I think uh, I learned something during my time there, which was that in the 2000s, dates and jobs realized that respectively for Microsoft and Apple, the biggest threat that they had was actually from employees leaving and making startups to compete with them. And they thought the best thing we can do about that is make this a really, really, really comfortable place to work where no one's ever going to want to leave. So they, you know, they bring in the free food, you get all these perks, it's the best health insurance, they pay really well, the office is super nice, the hours are reasonable. And um, that was their, that's them trying to, you know, remain the largest companies in the world. Um, so really, like, when I talked to so many friends from there who all wanted to start companies, it always came down to them just saying, like, it's just so comfortable here, like, I can't do it. And so while you're right, like I could go, I, I don't have kids and I don't have a mortgage. I could go bankrupt tomorrow and there's not a huge, um, not a huge personal toll on me. Um, it was giving up the comfort, <laughs> which yeah. sounds 
which <laughs> sounds like a massive cop out. It's nowhere near the level of uh, risk that other people are putting on the line. Um, but uh, you know, it was something. I still had a, it was a very stressful decision to make. Um, but uh, I feel very validated in, in having made that decision. Uh, but we waited until the last possible moment, so we didn't quit our jobs until we were very certain that we had uh, working beta that users liked with uh, you know some product market fit and a lot of investment interest. Um, and I actually had an Excel spreadsheet with all those things, and until I ticked every box, I wasn't ready to to leave. And then even then, I still waited until the exact day that my RSUs vested to resign. So it just happened to time out. So yeah, I, had, I took the, the minimal risk possible in the circumstances. <laughs> don't let that pretty face and a fancy hairstyle fool you, audience. This guy is is uh, pretty smart and ticking all the boxes. We're going to turn this over to Chloe. And uh, Chloe, please lead the next question. Um, actually, it follows on quite nicely. So like um, the, one, the one question that we get asked a lot, um, and I guess it's in relation to risk, if um, most of our kind of newbies that come through feel like they need to raise, raise funds and that, that kind of seeking investment is like an end goal for them. Um, however, like we also encourage them to really rethink around what an investment partner might look like because there's this bit of kind of love-hate relationship with VCs. Um, so in your experience, Graham, I'm going to ask you first, um, when is a good time to kind of raise funds and what was your approach to doing so? So... I've raised at this point um, about six, six and a half million Australian over a series of rounds. So it's not about the amount, it's more about the actual volume. I've actually had a lot of experience in this now and we're raising a really large series A right now. So I'm kind of right in the thick of it. Um, you make a decision early on when that you're going to need to, to raise as in you know that you can't get to market by yourself. But if you can possibly build the business by yourself, bootstrapped, um, that's actually the holy grail. The Silicon Valley is all about, yes, you've got to raise funds, you've got to raise funds. It's not. It's actually got to, you've got to build a really profitable business. Um, that's absolutely core. Cool. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have to be, you're going to get a lot of strife later on. So the process starts when you realise that, you know, your idea, you need to get to market really fast. You can't do that without without support of others. Um, you the, the process of raising is really about developing relationships first. So you start that early because ultimately people will back you that, that really trust you and they feel that they, they have to feel that they know you really, really deeply. And so this, this process takes a long time. Um, it's a process of referrals. Um, it does not happen quickly. And you're going to kiss 100 frogs to find one that actually is in, your, is in your space. And even he's not the right one, but he can refer you to the guy that is. Yeah. So, um, and every time, every step, the minute you start that course, you are on that course forever until you exit, because the investors only back you if they think they're going to make ten times their money, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And you got to, you know, if you're not making your numbers, you got to work like crazy to actually bring the story together so that you're presenting a new picture that is really appealing to the next stage investors. And the next stage and the next stage because every investor comes in when he thinks he can make his money in the next two or three years. That's what brings him in. You've got to have a, such a tight, clear, sharp, punchy story that is unquestionable and then you can raise. It's not easy. Um, uh, you are kind of giving up your baby as well, which is hard to do. Um, and so you also need to be very careful that you're bringing on good people. There's some easy money out there and uh, you take the easy money for the wrong people, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. So 
yeah. yeah, it's, I'll stop there. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot about like kind of value proposition, sustainable revenue, like seeking the right investment partner. Rory, I think you're raising at the moment. What's your experience with this? Yeah, we um, just stopped raising uh, a few weeks ago and managed to close out the round, which was great. Um, completely agree with uh, what Graham was saying just there, where basically like you got to make sure it's the right fit. We actually said no to certain funds who were able to close out our rounds for things as simple as like across the three due diligence calls, they never smiled at us on Zoom and we just got weird vibes, which you would think it, it's not it's not that important. It is to us. Like you're going into potentially a 10-year relationship with someone um, we have individual text threads with every single one of our investors. We can bring them all personally. Uh, we go out for coffee when we're in town with them. Um, so across the 16 people that we added to our cap table, we truly like all of them and they were able to provide specific things in the industry. Um, yeah, the, the other thing to look for is, uh, the other thing Graham said that I totally agree with is if you want to raise money, you can raise money. It's easy. There's infinite capital out there. You can go and grab it. It's about whether or not it makes sense for your business. So we had very specific requirements. Like they had to have experience in e-commerce. They had to have doors that they could open for us. Um, I think like two years ago, if you wanted to raise $100 million, you could bring SoftBank or Tiger Global and probably get the round done in like two weeks, with even just a pitch deck, right? I'm, and I'm not even joking, like 2018 to 2021, you could raise on basically nothing and raise as much as you wanted. Um, but that capital didn't come with any additional perks. So, uh, you know, make them work uh, for you as much as you're working for them. Yeah, networks, relationships. Um, actually, kind of on that, we've got I think sixty plus people watching us right now. So, if anyone um, in the in the viewing audience um, has any questions for any of our speakers on anything that we talk around or anything else, and um, please please feel free free to submit those. Um, I would say ask Chloe because I won't be able to pay attention to if there's actually any questions because uh, I'm <laughs> awful at that. I actually want to bring in Adrian's voice. You know, we aren't trying to ignore it, honestly, uh, because Adrian has such a depth of and uh, depth of experience. And so I, I was going through the notes in our, our, our uh, structure. And I'm like, oh, I totally skipped Adrian in this. So I apologize, Adrian, for not bringing you in sooner to this awesome conversation. So, you know, Adrian, your expertise really is around branding, marketing, marketing strategy. And you've spent, I mean, if anyone looks at your LinkedIn profile, you've spent a long time at high levels in major organizations doing this job and function. And so when we talk about the notion of building a brand, right? And what is that? First of all, I can, I can, so my background, consumer psychology, that's what I did, marketing. I could talk about brand and consumer behavior forever. So I'm going to try to be a bit more poignant with my question here. You know, in the world of startups, marketing and branding is very fluid, right? It depends on what you're hearing. You might start with one place, move to another place, language might shift. And so at the beginning of a journey, when should you start building this brand as a startup? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and not to be too contentious too early, but I think <laughs> a lot of people conflate brand and branding. Yeah. And uh, when we talk about branding, you know, we're talking about the application of a visual and a verbal language, the development of a corporate identity, uh, perhaps the naming of products in an architecture but when we're talking about brand, while they're absolutely related, we're really talking about um, a set of kind of foundational principles that will help you to you know, generate uh, traction in the marketplace. Now, I think what's interesting about some of the comments that have been uh, raised by the panel so far is there's a, different, uh, there's, there's a variety of different uh, places and spaces where you're applying 
um, your idea of your company. One is in raising money. You're telling a story to investors. One is you're trying to hire people. You're telling a story about your company um, to talent, uh, getting them interested. The other, the other place, um, which is so often um, uh, deprioritized, is you are telling a story about your product or your service to that first best customer, the customer group that you are trying to solve a problem for. Um, you know, I, I, I won't pick uh, too much of a fight with Rory at this stage. Um, Rory, <laughs> you'd mentioned uh, something about, I'd always wanted to start a company. Most of the entrepreneurs, most of the people starting um, you know, uh, companies that I've met over the course of the last 10 years start with this kind of fierce kind of urgency to want to solve a problem in the world. But that problem has to be solved for a person, right? For a customer. And um, to Graham's point, the easier, the quicker you can solve a problem for the customer, the more you have um, traction in the marketplace, the more you have money coming in, the more you're able to reinforce the message um, that you're telling talent that you want to hire, that, that you're telling investors. And so really my experience um, lately in the last 10 years of, um, of my life has been focus on who that customer is, focus on what problem you're trying to solve for that customer. Um, then, then you can get into branding, you can get into naming, you can get into promotions. But until you figure that out, you don't have a brand and therefore you don't have a business. So that that would be you know the first comment that I would put there. I'm always interested in, around uh, not that I want to. I mean, you're, I could again I could talk to you for hours, but like I'm always curious around the notion of category design versus branding focus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, if, you, if you, most of my career, certainly the first half of my career, is spent you know advising um, large corporates, you know, chief marketing officers in very large Fortune 500 companies, and they have a long history of knowing what their brand is, but more importantly, trying to differentiate their brand in an existing category. Mm. But I think a lot of what animates and energizes founders of startups isn't to try and fit into an existing category, it's effectively to create a brand new category. You know, we could argue about the nuances of were the original founders of Airbnb trying to position themselves within the hotel category, the hospitality category, or they basically trying to create a brand new category um, that would that would uh, on the basis of a mar yeah. two sided marketplace join together hosts and guests. And I and I would argue that actually a huge amount of the value in the first ten years of Airbnb wasn't due to their cleverness in differentiating themselves in the hotel or the hospitality category. It was the energy that went into and the vision that went into creating a new category. So I think all founders, whether they they know it or not are on a pathway, on a journey to create a brand new category rather than to fit into an existing one. Yeah, can I, can I add to that? Yeah, yeah, please. <clears throat> so yeah, I, I, I really like what you were saying. Um, what we've done, what I've learned is there's a, a large research you know, uh, organization called Gartner. What they preach is to uh, basically create your own niche and give it its own name because then you dominate in that space and you, you, you get traction. Um, and noted for that. This is what I've managed to do quite a few times now. Um, it actually works. And one of the, the, the little coups that I had, I've got to say, when I first uh, started the company I'm running now, it was called GoPC. We spent, I think it was seven months developing a logo. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars 
And it was so frustrating, right? And it was okay. I mean, it was beautiful at the end. But I remember when we pivoted and changed the company from GoPC to what is now called Bank Vault, uh, we came up with that name in like 15 minutes. I told the graphic designer she had 20 minutes. <laughs> and it worked. What was, what was really nice on the other side of it is that we went out and found a domain name. Um, uh, it was bankvaultonline.com, and it wasn't quite good enough. I, I reached out to a, to a US bank that had held the name bankvault.com for the last 23 years and uh, thought they'd never sell it to me, and they did uh, for a very, very reasonable sum. It was amazing. Uh, you can't call yourself, you can't use the word bank in your company name unless you're a, a bank, and we're not. But I found a loophole, which is the blood bank, and ASIC approved it. So we changed the name to Bank Vault Proprietary Limited. And, and I, uh, I thought, well, I wonder if we could get the trademark from Bank Vault. And uh, the trademark team said, there's no way in hell. But I said, well, just try it. You know, it's not going to cost much. So we put it in. We got it in Australia and then le leveraged it worldwide. So we got a hat trick. And I think the, 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 what I do like about the brand is it's very, very singular. Uh, a brand cuts through. I was chatting with a guy last night at the conference here. Uh, there's a, the West Tech Fest here in Perth right now. It's a tech conference. And this guy's got, unfortunately, the confusion of four different elements in his brand. And that makes it really difficult. So brand is, it doesn't matter what you call it, and it doesn't matter what your logo is, but it is about getting very singular and clear. So when you're talking to somebody, you can describe this in one sentence or half a sentence, and they can at least have a somebody to hang their hat on that I know kind of what you do for me that's what that's what brand is Claudine, and by the way I, I was going to say now we're, we're changing way we're not doing security for banks anymore and we've probably got to change the brand name but I've got to tell you it's hard <laughs> to let go of something but it's a hat trick <laughs> Claudine how do you think about this com this conversation around the other hearing these two gentlemen speak about it from their lens how do you think about it I definitely agree with Adrian um, when he says that, you know, it's important, well, for me at least, to first figure out what your brand story is and the why behind your organization and what kind of, um, what are you solving? What kind of pain points are you, you know, solving for your customers? So um, even today, I still think about why we set up Electivity and, and how our services can positively impact people's lives. So, for example, we um, we hardly use or post photos of the faces of our students in our marketing collateral, even though that research has shown that um, people like to see images of cute kid faces, right? Though we have the consent of um, the parents to use these photos, we choose not to because we feel that we have a part to play in protecting a child's privacy and that the child might not like to, you know, might like to create their own digital footprint or presence later in life. So we made that conscious um, decision to kind of um, demonstrate our core values through um, through corporate, through our hiring pro processes, and again, through our branding and market marketing collaterals. Mm. So I, I have an um, interesting follow-up question for Adrian, because... Uh... Yeah, I, I, I wrestle with this personally, you know, my brand name is Q Change. Now I always get asked, what the hell does that mean? And I say, well, I lived in the Middle East and I was around a bunch of Brits. And so like Q up change. So I kind of like overcomplicated it. So my question is, how much does the name matter versus the story around the name? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I've been involved in months upon months of uh, rolling naming sprints. Um, 
And, and honestly, it just, it, it really comes down to, do you have a clear purpose? Do you have a clear value proposition? I think Chloe mentioned that before. Do you understand how your company creates value for people? Um, and when you can answer those questions, you, you're kind of looking at your name, whatever it is, it could be a product name that you're going to promote to become a, a, a bigger brand name, a master brand, for example, or it could be just the name you're trading um, off at the moment. And as long as that name doesn't intuitively kind of throw your customers um, in a different direction, then you can add lots of different layers around whatever name it is to be able to, you know, uh, communicate, if you like, the value inherent in the product or the service. When, 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 and this is kind of dating me here, but let's face it, I'm, I'm already uh, a dated <laughs> person. You already called me a veteran. Yeah. <laughs> when, when Google first came out, nobody, you know, nobody Googled what Google meant. We just looked at this silly name. And there have been any number of other, you know, names by very, very successful companies over the years um, that at first, at first kind of listened uh, when we first saw them didn't really mean anything to them. But I think that uh, Google was very, very clever because even in the early days, it had a very clear purpose. It knew what it wanted to do in the world um, and it arranged all of the engineering, all of the design work um, uh, around that purpose, you know, to make the world's information more accessible and more usable. And it, and it made Google mean that. So, mm -hmm. so I don't necessarily think that you have to spend years and years and years hunting down the perfect name that has the perfect available URL. But I think if you come up with a name and, and, it's, and, it, and it feels like it's um, polar opposite to the value that your company wants to put out into the world, then I think you kind of have to rethink that and figure out, you know, you get, there's ways to modify that. Um, but I don't think you want a name that sends people in the opposite direction to the value you want to represent in the world. Yeah, I tend to, I tend to be in the camp of, um... There are so many companies that have just ridiculous names, but you know who they are based on what they do and the story they told around it. And so I'm really about that to your point, the value you're selling is more important than the name. Don't, over time, James? Do we just lose James? Maybe. We'll give him a couple of seconds. And you got to think that was going to be magic right there, right? Yeah, we were waiting for that big statement. <laughs> I have a, a funny story about names. I think in um, 2006, um, Clarol showcased a brand new curling iron. Um, it's called the Mist Stick in Europe. However, the Germans um, were less impressed because mist in German means excrement or manure. Manure. So, so therefore, that the Germans had no interest in buying a manure stick. So, well, that was a funny thing I thought about when we were talking about names. You have to, it's it's good to kind of do your you know um, research on how the names would sound in foreign language. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And um, what they mean, the meanings in, across the world as well. We've actually got exactly. an interesting question from, um, from the viewers. Um, viewers, do I call them viewers? Um, Ariane, I hope I said her name right, um, has asked um, in relation to kind of, you know, the problem identification piece that um, Adrian was just talking to, 
um, how are you guys able to finalize the idea of the service product of the company that you wanted to start up? Um, there must be so many choices that you could produce and what was your process of finding out what was missing in the market? Does anyone want to uh, take on that question? Yeah, I've got an initial answer for that. I think uh, we're in consumer, uh, so it's different if you're going business to business, although I think there's fundamental tenets that flow with both. Um, for us, it was, it's just about talking to users. Talk to your users as often as possible and as many times as possible and for as long as they can possibly talk to them and, and get them using the earliest possible version of the product and like telling you everything that sucks about it as early as possible. So we put out beta after beta after beta and we would just make these phone calls with like, like our target market was like 18 to 24 year old girls across USA. We would just make endless group phone calls with them and ask them, how do you shop? What are your shopping habits? What do you like about this? What sucks? What could be better? You know, what's magic? What would make you refer a friend? Like what wouldn't, what would put you off? Just over and over again. And we did that for over a year. Um, and so eventually like what you're finally building should, I think like be dictated by the problems that the market actually needs solved. And you've got to be really careful with this because sometimes people will say, yeah, I think that would be an awesome thing if you built it and then you build it, no one uses it. Right. And it just sounds great on paper, but then it's just not as useful as you think. And so that's where you just need to look at the data. So for us, it's a, it's a twofold approach, constant talking with our user base and analyzing what our users are actually doing, uh, whether they actually use the feature once you put it out. Yeah, that's so true. I think um, historically you build something and expect people to come, whereas today it's very different, which actually leads quite nicely into another question that's come from um, Andy Henton. It says, hi panel, um, I'm Andy, UWLM and former founder tuning in from the Bay Area. Um, question for Graham, in your opinion, has it become easier in the last 15 years to raise money in Australia? And what do you think the Aussie startup ecosystem needs to grow? Yeah, well, it's hard raising money in Australia. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, that's life, right? That's what we have to live with. Um, yes, it is. There's more of an appetite to do it now than probably we used to be uh, because people are aware that there have been some phenomenal successes. So you can, you know, you can hop onto something that could make, you know, 10 to even 100 times your investment potentially that's what they want to see so but i also think that um the you know the venture capital in australia is a slip of the wheel mostly um and yeah you know, i got to the us um i went to new, new york uh, a few years ago and within a few days i got to pitch on the main stage of the world trade center to room full of investors and i nailed it kind of got first place and um got swarmed by people afterwards. I remember this one particular guy said to me, he said, Graham, you know, there's uh, there's 8 million people here on Manhattan Island. And, uh, you know, the market is fantastic for you. And I thought, yeah, but in fact, he said, if you draw a ring around at all, there's about, a, I think, 60 million people in the in the area. But what stood out for me more than that was, you know, these people are actually hungry for an opportunity. They're prepared to take a risk. They want to be sold. And that's fantastic for an entrepreneur right you want someone who's going to actually believe your dream can see a competitive edge and jump at it so for me um i do still raise you know most of the money we've raised actually has been from australians um but i think you ultimately you need to get into a bigger market this is why i've gone to the us now um and we're raising in the us because there's just much larger funds and these funds are very very business-like it's it's all about you you know just they have a process you know that they have the money to deploy and they're looking for something that actually ticks all, ticks all the boxes. So I don't know if I've, if 
I'm not, I'm not sure that that was answering the question, but um, I think the answer is yeah, yeah. I think the answer is it's hard. It's hard in Australia. That's it's, the it's it's hard. It's ridiculously hard. If you can raise it, you're doing really well. And you know, Australian entrepreneurs in the uh oh, I was the first one to go down. <laughs> you're back, sir. You're back, James. We got you. Yeah. So um, why don't we why don't we pivot? We have time. We've got that. Don't be scared. Graham, your internet's a little bit, bit wonky, so we're going to move on. Um, we have a time, about 20 minutes, about 10 minutes left time for some questions from the audience. So, uh, Chloe, I'm going to give you a choice. You're up next with one of two questions. Uh, um, so you can choose where you want to go. It's like a choose your own adventure. So please. Can I only choose one? This is so hard. Um, okay, so... Uh, I'm probably going to try and squeeze in two because I'm a bit of a rule breaker, James. <laughs> um, the one question that we all had a really interesting chat about the other day was around teams. So this um, higher fire theory. Um, so we all know, I think, that teams will make and break your businesses. We see it with the early stage ones. And I'm sure you guys have seen it in the kind of later stage ones as well. So um, this is uh, Rosa Rory. Um, can you share us a story? around um, your team and what makes it work and how that impacts your business? Yeah, definitely. Um, and just to uh, add a footnote here, my company is much earlier stage than some of the other speakers here. So I think they'll be able to provide like a very different learnings as well. I can only really talk about the first year. Um, for us, it's been really interesting. We learned a lot from other friends who have run early stage companies around the risk of having employees versus contractors and vice versa. Uh, employees are harder to get rid of and a bad employee can sink a business really early if it's if it's the wrong hire, especially at pre-seed stage. Um, so we, pretty much everyone that we've hired, we've either known personally or they started on a three-month contract first um, just to de-risk it, which I think, uh, you know, ad hoc, business is always very ad hoc, but that definitely worked for us. Um, and there were contractors that we unfortunately had to let go of within the first five days because it just was like immediately clear that like this relationship wasn't going to work out. I'm very happy they weren't employees or it would have cost us a lot more money. Um, so that was lesson one. Uh, lesson two is, is sort of interesting. We would often get asked in, in fundraising calls by um, Silicon Valley investors, uh, what's your plans for, for hiring? How are you going to scale a team? Because they're so it's so tough to raise a good tech team right now. Everyone's getting poached by like Google and Amazon and so on. And um, our strategy was actually really great. We just said, well, we hire from Australia because we know we know the market there. And a lot of them want to move across to America. So well, pretty much every single hire from our team has been from UWA, which is a great plug to hit in this call. Um, and, uh, and, and it's awesome. And we pay super competitive rates, like we pay Silicon Valley rates, but um, we, we bring them across. And then that way we're not competing for the Stanford grad who's got you know Google and SpaceX um, knocking on their door. We're competing for the UWA grad who's choosing between Woodside and VGW. Um, and we say, well, what about America? Um, so that, that's kind of been our strategy, um, but really we're so early. Uh, I've known almost all of our highs personally um, before bringing them in, or at least kind of known enough people to know them to, to de-risk them. Yeah, epic. Um, Claudine, Adrian, do you guys have anything to add to that? No, I, I think, I think um, you know, there's a high degree of alchemy in putting teams together. Um, what I have noticed uh, over the years of working with founder teams is that the perfect team 
tends to comprise three types of people. And, and it's very hard if you're in a very tight talent market to ensure that you have each of these three kind of types of people. But if you can, it's magical. So, you know, this is kind of well-documented research. So it's not, you know, the, it's not Adrian Barrow's theory about team building, but um, you'll find that great performing teams have somebody who's a verbal thinker, um, somebody who's a visual thinker, and somebody who's a kinesthetic thinker. So visual and verbal, we all kind of understand. So visual tends to be the loudest person in the room. They're the storyteller. They're the person who's kind of energizing with their language. Visual thinkers are often kind of thinking in patterns and shapes. And that's very, very important when you're developing kind of technology because so much of the way that you're interacting or building interactions with customers um, is really in a three-dimensional space. You know, the, the best metaphor in pop culture I can think of is Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind when he steps inside the bar and he's trying to figure out how to get the girl. You can see that play out. So yeah. visual and verbal, kinesthetic thinkers are people who are thinking about how do I build this? The engineers, the architects, the people who are arranging the technology in real time in their heads and figuring out, I hear what the, the verbal guy is going on about. Um, I, I don't have any idea what the visual person's thinking because they're in deep processing mode. And somehow somebody's going to turn to me and they're going to ask me, can you build this? And so I have to have an answer to that. But what we find is that um, the best teams have a balance between the visual and the verbal and the kinesthetic. Um, and, that's, and that's been played out from a human dynamics point of view time and time and time again. Tricky to find, but when you get the balance right, you've actually got something very special. Can I just add to that? I can say that me and my co-founder, that is so absolutely 1000% true where he visualizes everything on a PowerPoint. He's got a PowerPoint of like 70 slides of ideas, all modeled. And I have zero PowerPoints with zero like, like diagrams because I can't be bothered because it just sits in my head. And I just want to talk about it. And it's so funny how that really plays out um, with us two individually. And so I love that. I've never heard that before, but that's fantastic. Yeah, I feel that people now um, look for jobs that find, you know, values that align with theirs. I mean, it's good to have a good salary, the benefits and all that. But ultimately, if you feel that the company that you're working for share the same beliefs and values that you have and you're impacting the community and people in a positive manner, I think that that would be a good fit in terms of cultural fit, um, in terms of hiring um, strategies. Yeah. Yeah, you're so true. That values alignment, that cultural fit, especially like the, the newer generations we're seeing coming through, it, it's, um, it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's top of front of mind, front of mind. Uh, um, the, the only thing I might add, though. Yeah, go ahead. Please. I'm sorry, James. The, the, the only thing I might add is um, just hard lesson learned that increasingly I think people, not necessarily just entrepreneurs, but people who are hiring other people in the marketplace, they tend to, they tend to prioritize chemistry over capabilities. Does it feel, do this person feel like they get what we're doing here? Do they have a kind of like a strong, uh, you know, kind of charisma that's coming across? Would we wouldn't be in the same room with them cracking a problem? And they kind of deprioritize capabilities um, and overprioritize chemistry. And what you end up with is a whole bunch of people who get along, but then not anybody who's that kind of the idea of opposable minds 
is is kind of like is magic if you can get that happening. Yeah, I think that's an interesting dichotomy because you know I'm in the camp of hire for fit. You can learn most skills. Now, if it's a tan, if it's a you know a skill like coding or things like that, those are very functional tactical skills they need to be good at. But um, I find in 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 not to dismiss. I come from, but marketing, you can teach most of the stuff in marketing if you just give them enough time and runway to learn it. Not everything, there's some nuance to it. I totally agree with that. But like, uh, but I think I always find that like, um, you know, I was going to share a story of, we had a, a quasi co-founder and it's longer story. I knew early on he shouldn't have been part of the business, but it got very complex and he hung on for two years. And uh, to your point, Rory, that you were talking about, like, He's not a contractor and he was really hard to get rid of. And so it was very, very challenging. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did not diss the whole field. That's not fair. Um, and so it was really, really challenging because I think it actually created a, a negative relationships between, between me and the co-founder for a really long time. Um, and it, that dynamic just sucked. So uh, Chloe, you want to fire the last question so we have time for the audience? Um, yeah, I actually might follow um, with a question from the audience and then roll into the last one last, okay. if that's okay. Um, so there's a question that's coming from Ian McIntyre. He's a really old friend of mine. Um, Roy, I know he's an old friend of yours too. If I don't ask this question, as controversial as it may be, um, he will be shooting me messages for uh, the next week. So here we go. Um, Ian uh, went to UWA. I know how much he valued his experience at UWA. He, I think he did enough units degrees but he also is now founder in california so here's a controversial question so if you want to be an entrepreneur today what does the university experience kind of provide you in terms of the skills you need to kind of succeed along that journey actually look at it slightly differently um i think like a lot of the value i see people getting out of college uh now is honestly networking um your graduating cohort becomes your your career network as you as you move through your life. And um, that's why, you know, the, we've, we've done like women's stores to hire so well out of BWA. And I look at like Stanford kids in the Bay and they all just build companies together and then they all know each other and it just goes on for generations, right? And so like, while you can learn a lot of things on the internet now, uh, finishing a degree de-risks you in the investment because it proves you can finish something and it also de-risks you because it proves you, you probably have some kind of graduating cohort network. Um, so I think that the power of a degree is still powerful, I, I honestly think. Awesome. I'm glad you said that because I've just finished my MBA, which cost me a small fortune. Um, <laughs> Can I, anyway. as, as an ex-professor who like taught kids trying to decide what degree to get and when to get it, um, I would always say that I, mean, I, I had parents call me on the phone and say, hey, can you tell my kids to do mark or to do accounting and to do finance? And I was like, First of all, if they're miserable, they're going to go back to college in three years and change the job anyways. So like why? So I always kind of laid, you know, from a from a career perspective, follow what you love and that passion. And to Roy's point, finishing, you can go start something after that. You can learn all those skills. It's that ability to follow your passion and learn that to me is the most important attribute of a founder, because you've got to be willing to fail, be curious, pick up a new idea, new thought, new skill in the flow and not, not lose a beat about it. Um, but if you are worried about the, I'm not using my accounting or finance, I, I don't know if it's, if it's meant for you in that perspective, so. We should have you, James, on our advisory board. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what Electivity espouses, you know, to promote um, 
lifelong learning and the joy of learning so that you know you reinforce what you learn and then those skills are transferable a good example is my husband he he was a um, and by the way we met in uwa um he was a uh, genetic engineer but now he's a fintech tech, uh, fintech entrepreneur so there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah um thanks so much for that. Sarah, um, there's a lady called Sarah Smith Agent. She's got a specific question for you, which I might fire off to you afterwards. Um, but another question that came through from Antonio, which I think will be our last one from the audience, James, if I'm correct. Yeah. So it, he has a question around, they have a question around risk. So um, they, the question is, at the beginning, it's really easy to take risks. Or I would question that, but okay. Um, easy to take risks because the loss on failure is small. But as you grow and you achieve more and you have more to lose, um, how do you achieve the same level of success once you have something substantial to lose? Is it easier to continue with the risk? Well, Antonio, this is the joy of a limited liability corporation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can see like yourself from risk. <laughs> Um, but I, I don't think the risk increases as you have more to lose. I, maybe a controversial answer and someone here might really disagree with me. I think your uh, the amount of doors that are open uh, to you uh, only increase and the amount of equity you need to give away in a business to make it succeed um, decreases because you can start funding your own rounds. But now you have the choice to do it. So you can de-risk it by still using other people's money. If you have a track record as a founder, you can go and raise usually a larger round, honestly. I think the risk only decreases over time the more successful you are. Adrian, what did, you find, what did you find in corporate world? Like, did you find that people were risk takers, risk adverse, trying to always manage the, the nuance in politics? Like, you know. Sorry, was this to me? I, Adrian, Adrian, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, th I think there's a, there's a wide spectrum of people in, in corporate life. Um, and it's not just a wide spectrum of young to old and therefore of risk takers to more conservative people. Um, I, I, th I think that I, I would tend to agree just generally with the vibe of this panel that um, the people who make the biggest impact to the world are the people that have a growth mindset. Now, whether it, that's because they characterize themselves um, as being lifelong learners or whether it's that people are open to seeing the changes that are happening in the world and, and being you know, energized enough to want to think about those problems and come up with solutions or potential ways to solve those problems. So what I've found in, in corporate life is that there tend to be um, people of all of those, you know, uh, people who want to hang on to their job for life and, and don't want to make a ripple because they don't want to come to the attention of people who might one day fire them. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, I've actually found that, you know, you've got veterans who you would expect to literally be on a glide path to retirement, who still feel as though they have unfinished business in their career because there are so many problems that need solutions. And, um, and I think what, what, what I've done, uh, I've always been more interested in trying to help those people who see the problems in the world and want to come up with new solutions as, a, as opposed to helping those people hang on to the jobs that they've got. That's awesome. All right, Chloe, we're running out of time. Fire it. Fire the last question. Okay, last one. So as you guys know, um, I work with our current students to help them develop their businesses. And um, we are all here for because of our connection to UWA and how much we love this space. Um, if 
and I'm going to throw it to every single person. In 30 seconds, can you give one piece of advice on starting your own business? Please. Pick a name. Rory, you're next on my list. Uh, sure. Uh, there's an old adage I think about often. Um, the premise is that if you're a software engineer in software engineering, you're a dime a dozen. But if you're a software engineer with knowledge about any other industry, that's uh, you're very rare. And so I, I see a lot of opportunity to start successful companies by going and innovating in a space that not a lot of people know about. Flexport is a really great example. The guy basically reinvented shipping freight containers because the industry was very outdated. Now it's a multi-billion dollar business. So I would say always try and learn two things, right? Like coding and, and software engineering, and then separately, uh, our business, like any kind of industry, go and innovate in that and, and people will think that you're incredible. Brilliant. Adrian? You know, this is going to sound a little bit squishy, um, so apologies in advance, but, um, you know, we talked about kind of lifelong learning and having a growth mindset. I think there's something to be said for lifelong humility as well. Um, I think, you know, one of the worst traits um, of anybody in business, and this extends to, uh, to entrepreneurs and founders, is kind of arrogance. Um, I, I think that if you can kind of stay humble and, and always be in kind of service to solving problems that will improve the life of the people who, you know, you're de developing your products and services for, then... You, you will kind of naturally de-risk your business uh, because you'll, you'll always be wondering either is there a better way of ha have I understood the problem well enough? Um, is the answer that I first came up with the best answer? And so I, I would kind of um, I would kind of just say stay humble, my friends. James, do you want to give us a, what your thoughts are on this? Uh, you caught me, me multitasking trying to answer a question from the audience. Um, so, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to Claudine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please go to Claudine. She's, she's really <laughs> um, I'm going to be a bit squishy too, so bear with me. Um, so choosing, I guess choosing to be an entrepreneur is easy. Being entrepreneurial isn't. Um, I, I think that what I quickly realized is that my vision for how my business should look ended up being quite different from reality. So by all means, create a playbook, but be ready to pivot in some ways as the landscape is always changing. And um, keep the end goal in mind, but always stay true to your brand values in everything you do. And I, I like to shout out to all the female entrepreneurs out there. <laughs> you go. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Um, and Graham? Well, I think my, my tip is I'm always about to solve something that gives an immediate return on investment. If I can solve a problem that's right at my foot, um, and I can get an immediate payback from there, it's supercharged. If you go, I will expand and expand and expand. I run into entrepreneurs a lot, but they're casting way over the horizon beyond where they can really see. Those Graham, I think your connection might be a little unstable. Does everyone else? It'll never really come to fruition. I'll say it myself. Yeah, okay. So, Graham, sorry to cut you off. I apologize. Um, we have a minute left, and so I want to I want to close this up. Um, I want to now now I can answer the question because I stopped multitasking. So, if I was to give the thirty seconds of advice of you know this journey, um, commit. 
commit to it. Um, if you don't commit, you're halfway out. And if you're halfway out, you're only going to fall backwards or be in the middle, but you're not going to fall forward. But as you fall forward, you're going to fall in potholes. You're going to hit roadblocks, step over, fill the potholes, go around the roadblocks, but stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish. And the most important thing I've learned is bring people around you that supports you, believe you, and will lift you up. The journey of an uh, uh, entrepreneur as a startup founder um, is, is, is as exciting, as, as excruciating as possible at the same time. Um, because you're by yourself a lot. So that's my that's my two cents worth. Um, just to conclude, I want to say thank you. Thank you to Rory, Adrian, Graham, Claudine, and most importantly, Chloe for, for helping out here today. Uh, the audience, if you have any questions, um, please reach out to me directly and I can direct it to the panel if you have questions for them, or you can also direct it to Chloe. My email is jkelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, at qchange.com, the letter qchange.com. And I can direct any of those questions out or to the alumni office as well. That's probably better suited uh, than me, but to be fair, I'll give that the option. So I just wanna say thank you to everybody again. Um, really enjoyed this panel. Uh, Rory, get on that flight, make sure that first class seat is cushy for you. Uh, Bram, go do your windsurfing. Claudine, go hike your little hill near your area. And Adrian, you look amazing, man. I don't know how you do it, but I'm jealous of that nice set of hair. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, James.